Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Today on CityCast Chicago, it's the first day of school for CPS students, including probably thousands of newly arrived migrant children. We're sitting down with an education reporter and a bilingual elementary school teacher to learn how the district has prepared or is struggling to welcome this influx of new students. It's Monday, August 21st. I'm Jacoby Cochran, and this is what Chicago's talking about. Chalkbeats Max Lubers has been digging into CPS's resources for these new students. Max, welcome to CityCast. Thank you for having me. A big question I know a lot of Chicagoans have right now is, do we know exactly how many migrant students have joined Chicago public schools? So the answer to that is a little bit complicated. We do know that there's kind of just over 5,400 new English learner students from like the start of last school year to the end of last school year. And we know that from enrollment data, and that's something that Chicago Public Schools does track. What they aren't really releasing publicly, or maybe they just can't really get quite a handle on, is the exact number of migrant students. And so we can kind of have like an estimate of like, here's how many students are coming in from non-English speaking homes. Here's the increase of, of those students who are learning English, but obviously there's going to be some children who have recently migrated here who already speak English, who won't be captured by that number. There's also some children who are coming in who have not recently migrated here and uh, don't speak English and are captured by that number. So it's not like a perfect estimate, but it does give us a sense that there are most likely thousands of children who have enrolled from the start of last year to the end of last year. So this number of English language learners is supposed to determine if a school offers a bilingual education program. Um, and the and the English language learners population had already been growing even before, you know, this last year of tens of thousands of, of, of arriving, arriving asylum seekers. So, you know, first, what's part of that program officially? Yeah. So when you have a full-time, what they call it is a transitional bilingual education program. And this is something that's mandated by the state. And it happens when you have 20 or more English learners of the same language background in a school. So once you kind of like hit that metric, you have to basically teach the students English as a second language. So that's like literally teaching them English. And then you also need to teach core subjects in both English and their native language. And then you also have to provide them like education about their culture and history of their homelands and then also the U.S. So there's kind of like a couple components to to those uh, programs. Yeah, I'm Gabriel Paez. I've been a bilingual educator in CPS since 2013. Uh, Currently, I work on the west side at a public elementary school in Humboldt Park as a bilingual education coordinator. 
what we do is we make sure that as many children in our building are, are as possible, as many ELL or English language learners are in front of uh, uh, properly endorsed teachers. Um, and we make sure that we have CPS updated on our program models on how we deliver bilingual ed and ESL services to kids who are ELs. We teach them the survival English. We uh, teach them grammar. We teach them how to read in English. Sometimes we teach them how to read in their native language as well. Like we are getting a lot of kids with interrupted schooling who might not be speaking or reading Spanish as a first language. Does CPS have the staff to offer these bilingual services to all of the students who need them? So the short answer is no from what we're hearing on the ground. Um, We also kind of looked into their staffing file and we found that the number of designated bilingual teachers is on the decline. Now, Chicago Public Schools basically said, like, not everyone who is actually teaching bilingual education is going to be designated as a bilingual teacher on that staffing file data that we were looking into. And they also said that their number of endorsements are going up. Um, So their endorsements for bilingual education and ESL, those things are on the, like, rise. But we don't know, like, how many teachers are actually in the classroom with those endorsements. And so it's a pretty complicated picture. We do know that the, the, just from what we're hearing on the ground and kind of like all that data together, the short answer is probably not. Um, and we also know from like a WBEZ analysis a couple of years ago that a lot of the schools weren't in compliance with sort of those, mm-hmm. all those requirements for those transitional bilingual education programs. Yeah, it feels like I'm walking you into a no, right? We don't, and and not to rag on CBS, but they don't have enough uh, support staff. They don't have enough school bus drivers. They don't have enough librarians. I imagine when we think about bilingual educators, there's a, a gap there as well. You said endorsements are on the rise. Is that like a certification? People who could teach these classes, but are not yet in that position? So it's a certification. We don't know which ones are in the classroom, um, but we do know that like over 6,000 teachers in CPS do have like a bilingual and or an ESL endorsement. So like bilingual education endorsement, that one requires you to like have a degree in the language that you're teaching. It lets you like teach students in a native language. Um, if you don't have a degree, then you have to take a test to like make sure that you can go ahead and teach those students in a native language. But we And then like ESL is like different because it's basically um, being able to to teach students English. So it's a it's a different scenario. What did some of those people on the ground say about the gap in resources? Is it closing? Is it exacerbating other problems with with newly arriving students? What are we hearing from people? Yeah, I talked with the Chicago Teachers Union Bilingual Education Committee chair. who, who you're also having on your program. And he was kind of talking about it and telling me that a lot of schools are really scrambling and, and, and just trying to fulfill these needs. They might be pulling in people who can speak the language, um, who might not be like completely officially certified to like help uh, students. You know, it's, it's kind of like on an emergency basis. It's like all hands year. on deck in some respects. On, exactly. And like what we can know from like, the data level is not the same thing that we can know from like the on the ground level. Right. Um, so it's, it's, it's hard to, to know what's happening in every single school. 
but we we can kind of confidently know um, that a lot of people are trying to step in and help. Well, you know, newcomers have always been part of Chicago, you know, but we um, with this new influx of kids, what I've encountered that I've never really encountered so much with newcomers that we've had in the past is the numbers and the severity of the need of them and their immediate families. It is not normal for us to have students who sleep on the floor of a police station, local LSCs, the local school councils and administrators um, and the bilingual advisory committees are working right now to gather the book bags, the food, the essential hygiene kits to now start be making connections with community partners like Erie Family Health or Rush, Rush Medical. They do a lot with newcomers right now or New Life Church, you know. Logan Square Neighborhood Association, because some schools are literally going to experience a line of people of newcomers arriving, all of whom are STLS or temporarily unhoused, all of whom have extreme uh, trauma from their from their passage, from their from their voyage over here. One of the things we've tried to do on the podcast is remind people that even as the majority of migrants who've arrived in the last year and a half are from Latin American countries where uh, for many of them, Spanish is their native language. We also know that there are students from Ukraine and Afghanistan and North Africa. What about the curriculum, especially for these students who speak languages other than Spanish? Yeah, so we we know that the kind of universal curriculum that CPS has put out. This is Skyline. They're instituting um, kind of like student-facing Spanish resources, but I was having teachers tell me that that isn't the same case for other languages. Um, and also even students coming from um, like Latin America, Central America, like they might speak indigenous languages that aren't Spanish. And so I was hearing from uh, a lot of people on the ground that even though there might be like this increase around also Spanish resources in certain neighborhoods or certain schools, like that doesn't necessarily cover everyone. And that has been a problem that people have been facing. I know you weren't able to get all of the school level data that you would have liked for this story, but do you have any sense of how these school services vary from neighborhood to neighborhood? Yeah, so I, I I do know that some schools have very robust programs. Other schools have, you know, maybe just one one teacher on staff or maybe no teachers on staff. So it, it really kind of depends on where you land. I know that a lot of advocates were telling me, like, they want to make sure that students are getting to schools that have the resources and they want to be working and making sure that, like, Sure, a student could just like enroll wherever is closest, but is that like the best scenario for them? Is it better for them to make sure that they get to to school that has those resources? That was one of the things I wanted to ask you about. And I know you've been covering schools, but throughout the summer, so much conversation has been around housing migrants, housing asylum seekers. And it feels like the decisions on where shelters open it's mostly about where do we have the space? Where is there a building not being used, a motel, an old school, an old community center? But that doesn't seem to necessarily line up where if that's the best neighborhood, if that's the best neighborhood school for an individual. So do you have any sense of how the city is trying to kind of create shelter close by where these other resources are going to be available for people? Yeah, I think it's like pretty, you know, up in the air in terms of like 
like you were saying, like where where do uh, where does the city of Chicago like have space to bring people? And like a lot of that is like constantly in flux. And so I was hearing from a ton of advocates that like yes, there's all these issues around resources with education, but also a huge thing that's affecting any child walking in is like whether or not they have housing, whether or not they feel like they have a stable place to go and rest their head at night. And so that has just like not even like on the on the enrollment level, but also just like on the the mental level of like, okay, I'm coming in. I I don't know where I'm going to be living. Am I going to have to if we end up moving, like take a really long bus ride to get to the school that I'm enrolled in? Is it going to be better for me to go ahead and transfer to a school that is closer to wherever I end up? And then is that going to be like another thing to have to deal with being sort of like ripped out of of a community that you've sort of already settled in and like to be clear the the federal law like allows students in these types of situations to enroll in school even if they don't really have like kind of the documentation that that um people generally have when they're enrolling in school and they're allowed to stay in those schools um all year if they want to what a school would have to have in place to most humanely serve newcomers we would have to have systems in place, especially around intake. Intake is really challenging for a lot of our newcomers who are, or who are using these temporary phones, you know, that they have to have for immigration. And they're supposed to manage some portal that barely translates into Spanish, you know. So apart from just the intake, we would, we would need to have obviously solid bilingual education programs all the way through. We would have to have dual language programming where kids are not asked to give up their heritage language you know, as if it's a deficit. And we would also have ESL and literacy classes for the parents and for the extended family. I have a lot of kids who are coming in with their 20-year-old siblings who may have even finished high school in their countries, and they want to go on, but they're stuck in this in this media this middle ground where they can't go on with their lives because of you know because of paperwork, because of their documentation, because of the barriers. You know, I've always thought that school buildings need to be a centralized place for what the human services that people, low-income people, definitely need. I would also say that if I could, you know, within realism, within a realistic world here, I would have the state send authorities, uh, uh, human services send uh, at the state level come into our school buildings and help us register these kids and help us make distribute resources to these kids and come with their own trucks so that we're not pulling from our general SDLS funds, right? It is for a lot of these families, it, it is about whether they can survive their first winter in Chicago. It's going to be that bad. It feels like all of that is on top of the things I feel like most students are going to be going through. Will I have friends? Will I like my teachers? Mm-hmm. What are we going to be learning? What is happening? You know, on, on top of the learning, how is CPS prepared to, to tackle the other challenges these students face? You just mentioned a few of those insecure housing, you know, trauma. We, we already know, especially with the Johnson administration, we want to be providing more mental health services for students, more ancillary services and we're struggling to do that for 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 students who've been in Chicago. You know, how is the district trying to address that for newly arriving students? So we do know that like Chicago Public Schools has doubled the number of social workers in the past few years. They're budgeting for over 600 social work positions and like the most recent public staffing file. We know that they're trying to bring in more funding um, for for the new budget. But we also know based off of uh, the most recent endorsement data that like only one social worker has a bilingual or an ESL endorsement, those endorsements that I was talking about earlier. 
And um, one out of the new or one in just overall? One overall. Uh, and that's that's data from October 2022. So fall of 2022. Um, and so that might have changed. But like the the basically they, they gave us some like internal endorsement data and we were able to see that only one social worker had that bilingual or ESL endorsement. We saw that about 5% of like the district's more than 800 counselors and about 28% of roughly like 250 case managers also had like a bilingual and or an ESL endorsement. So it's, it's one thing to have support in place, right? One thing to have trauma support and mental health services in place. And then it's another thing to make sure that like a student can access those easily uh, through their own language. Right. And so obviously I don't think that necessarily captures all the people who can like speak a language. They might not just like have that endorsement, but on the ground bilingual uh, social workers who aren't documented essentially. Yeah. Basically, basically, but like that's still going to be a problem if your like social worker in your school, if you have one, like is only able to speak English, then Mm -hmm. you're in a pretty hard situation. You might be able to like, have some translation stuff happening, but like, especially with something so sensitive as like mental health, that's going to be really difficult for a student um, coming in, trying to get resources. I wonder if in the education conversation, we're seeing a similar tension that we see in neighborhoods when uh, a proposed shelter is coming up. Have you heard from parents or students already at schools that are seeing an influx of newly arriving students and what are they saying? Are they welcoming? Yeah, I I wouldn't want to speak for like every community, but I did talk with like a lot of advocates in like Little Village and Brighton Park and and some of these neighborhoods that have really rich cultures already of immigrants. And um, they were talking about like wanting to make a very welcoming space for these students. And this goes back to kind of the housing issue like a lot of advocates were telling me like there's this issue of housing and then there's this issue of making sure that students feel like they have a home and what does it mean to make sure that like they feel like they're in community and they feel accepted and welcomed and embraced and what can we do basically these advocates were saying to make sure that student feels that way. Max despite an amazing amount of research on your part. There seems to be a lot of gaps in data. There seems to be a lot of gaps in what people know on the ground. So what are the questions you still have about how CPS is serving um, th- this growing population? Yeah, I think like I, I'm i still wanting to know like where students are. Um, mm-hmm. I would I still am wanting to know like right that that question that started our conversation of like how many students actually like we we can have these rough estimates and like that maybe is something that's not going to change that we're only ever going to have a rough estimate but like that's that's a gap that I'm still wondering I'm still wondering like a lot of migrants started kind of coming in last August it's been a year so like what is it going to look like now that maybe some of these resources are more established or are maybe not still established, uh, even though this started happening a year ago and, and has been happening for years. Yeah, I've definitely seen the shift in Humboldt Park, and that's because primarily Hispanic families are being pushed further and further west. Now the west side is even too expensive, and they're moving to the south side, they're moving to the suburbs, they're leaving the state of Illinois, right? Um, but that really makes me think of how we need to look at this new wave of newcomers and 
even the you know the ones who came before them is really a blessing in disguise to CPS. This is a shrinking school district in a funding formula that rewards schools based on attendance, right? Based on how many kids you have on the twentieth day of school. So in a district that you know if your school will shut down if you get if you if you lose too many students, you know that's what happens in Chicago. What we're looking at is the only out outlet for CPS to up its numbers right now are the are the are the migrant children who are arriving here. And you know this is why the federal government needs to allow work permits for these people so that they become long-term residents of Chicago and, and become part of our city. They want to become part of our city. Uh, they they they're here. I want to give another thank you to Chalk Beats Max Lubers for all of the work you're doing uh, to keep track of arriving migrant students in Chicago public schools. And thank you for breaking down some of your findings here with CityCast. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks also to Gabriel Paez, a CPS bilingual education coordinator in Humboldt Park and chair of the Chicago Teacher Union's Bilingual Education Committee. Before I let you go, some good news. Today is your last day to enjoy Millennium Park's free summer music series. Catch Carla Morrison, Girl Ultra, and DJ Rock Show Sounds at 6.30 at the Pritzker Pavilion. If you can't make it to Millennium Park, I understand there are still plenty of events and parks across Chicago this week, including music at Wells Park and Lincoln Square tomorrow, summer dance at Douglas Park in North Lawndale Wednesday, and karaoke and the Wiz at South Shore Cultural Center Wednesday. You can see Chicago's full night out in the parks lined up in the show notes as always we appreciate you for listening make sure you subscribe to our daily newsletter hey chicago at chicago.citycast.fm today we got a breakdown of some of illinois new education laws and join us tomorrow on the podcast where we're looking at mayor brandon johnson's first 100 days and some of your favorite places to cry in chicago if you haven't given your favorite place yet let us know at 773-780-0246 and follow us on twitter and instagram at citycast chicago i'll talk to you tomorrow peace